Well, good morning. <clears throat> There's a story about um, two gas company servicemen who were out on a call. One of them was a senior supervisor and the other one was a young trainee. And so they drove to a suburb uh, and parked the truck, service truck, at one end of the street. And they worked their way down the street, house by house, checking the gas meters. Um, at the last house, uh, they were checking the gas meter. And there was a woman in, the, in, the, in her kitchen looking out the window as the two of them did this. Well, when they finished, uh, finished the, the last house, the uh, senior supervisor thought he'd have some fun with his young co-worker. So he challenged him to a foot race to the truck at the end of the street. So they, they took off running. And, and when they were approaching the truck, they realized that the, the, the lady was huffing and puffing right behind them. And so they, they stopped and asked her, you know, what's wrong? What's going on? And she said, well, when I see two gas men running from my house full speed, I figure I had better run also. On that first Easter, in the story that Adele just read, we have also two men and one woman running. And there's also some other parallels. There, there, there's a lot of confusion about what is actually happening here, what's going on. And there's also um, some fear. In this passage, it says the other disciple, which we know was John. We can see that from other places. The other disciple saw the empty tomb and grave clothes and that he believed. Now, what did, what did he believe? Did he believe right away from seeing the empty tomb and the grave clothes? Jesus Christ is, is risen from the dead. No, not yet. Mary has been to the tomb earlier. This is her second trip, right? So she walked up there with the other women to supply some spices for Jesus' body, you know, as it decayed to kind of keep things dignified and, and smelling decent. And, and um, she sees the empty tomb and she goes back to tell the disciples. And so Peter and, um, and John, they run there to check things out. Okay, are, is she off her rocker? Is this actually happened? And they, they see the empty tomb. They see the grave clothes and say, okay, yes, I believe. I believe that she saw what she said she saw. The tomb is empty. And so he and Peter turn back and they go home. They run to the tomb, but they've all discovered Jesus' body is gone. And so they turn and they walk away and all hope is gone. Have you ever been in a place in life where you have lost hope? Where you have set out with high hopes, maybe for your career, um, for your marriage, for your, your children, for um, a special vacation. You've invested money in something. You set out uh, with high hopes and it's a letdown. Plans fall short. Um, people let you down. You let yourself down. And suddenly the life you're living is not the life that you dreamed of living. And you find yourself in a place you did not anticipate being. Les Miserables is one of the most famous um, novels. It turned into a musical, of course. And Victor Hugo, the author, um, one of the main characters is a young woman named Fantine. And uh, she sings a powerful song as she finds herself in a helpless and hopeless place. The context is this. She has a, had a summer lover. He's left her with a child all alone. She finds work in a factory, but has to place her daughter Cosette in the care of some corrupt and cruel innkeepers. Uh, it's hard enough, but then they discover she's had a child out of wedlock. She's thrown out of the factory, loses her job, and she's thrown into the street. In order to try to care for Cassette, she's forced to sell her hair, and then she has to sell her teeth, and then she sells her body. 
She's falsely accused of a crime. She's placed under arrest. And on top of this, she's desperately ill. And now that dark place, she sings, I dreamed a dream and days gone by, and now life has killed the dream I dreamed. Sounds pretty hopeless, doesn't it? Now, I certainly hope that none of us are quite in that sort of desperate of a place, but we all have dreams that haven't come true. We know how it feels to be so disappointed or discouraged by a situation or by a person that we, we feels like hope is gone. If it's not true for you now, it's probably true for some of you know or love, or eventually it will be. Kind of a cheery way to start a sermon, isn't it? But just a couple of weeks ago, what did we celebrate? We celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because Jesus Christ lives, we can always, always, always have hope. And so over the next few weeks, what we're going to be doing is looking at that hope, the source of that hope, what it means for us in life, in the circumstances, in relationships that we find ourselves in. And to do that, we're going to be looking at Bible passages um, that are about the first encounters that people had with Jesus on that first Easter or after that first Easter. And John 20 is where we begin, the passage that Adele read just a few moments ago. And it begins at a grave, and it begins with a woman weeping. So let's dig into this passage. And the question we're going to be asking this morning is, where do we find hope? Kind of a big question, right? Where do we find hope in life? Now, there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all talk about the resurrection. But John offers us some details and some richness that the other Gospel accounts do not. John teaches us how to live in light of what has happened. So let's take, take a look now. So as we've already read, Mary's already made one trip to the tomb on that morning. She tells the other two, John and Peter, they run to the tomb to see if she's actually, you know, being actually experienced what she says she has. The outrunner, and by the time she arrives, they're already turning to go back home. So she's alone again for a second time on that morning at this empty tomb, looking in, seeing these grave clothes. And she is devastated. And she does the only reasonable thing to do. She begins to cry. Now, who is this Mary of Magdala? There's all sorts of tradition about her and, and theories. Um, there's a tradition dating back to the 8th century, which identifies her as the prostitute in Luke 7, who, who washes Jesus' feet with her tears. But there's nothing in Scripture to fully confirm that. The rock opera Jesus Christ Superstar portrays her as this sensuous woman who's torn between conflicting emotions. On one hand, she, there's this religious devotion to Jesus, and on the other hand, there's this romantic attraction, and she sings, I don't know how to love him. There was a, a popular novel a few years ago called The Da Vinci Code, and, and, and the author, Dan Brown, uh, portrays Mary as a woman who becomes Jesus' wife and the mother of his child and the leader of the church after his death. Now, none of these portrayals have any historical or biblical support. What we are told from Scripture is that Mary of Magdala was one of several women who were followers of Jesus who supported him in his ministry. And we're also told that Jesus delivered her from seven demons. Now, we don't know um, what possession looked like in Mary's case in her day. But we know from other biblical stories about this sort of thing that demons could cause a person to cut themselves, to throw themselves into the fire, and to lose control of their behavior and their emotions. And when that happens, such people would be locked up typically, or they'd be just turned into the street. 
outcasts to live on their own. But whatever her past had been, Jesus, with a simple word, sets her free from it. He delivers it from her. He sets her free from those dark forces. And she has hope again. She has a life. A life that's centered on Jesus. And, and now he's gone. And so when these angels say, why are you crying? She must have thought, that's a ridiculous question. They have taken my Lord away, she says. And I don't know where they put him. She must have been thinking, what's my life? Is it going to revert back? Will those dark forces come into my life again? What's going to happen to me? Who am I going to become? What does the future hold for me without Jesus? She might as well have said, they have taken my hope away. And I don't know where they put it. I don't know how to find it again. What is hope anyway? We use the word hope a lot. Is it wishful thinking? Is it naive optimism? Hope it doesn't rain. Hope the economy bounces back. Hope the sermon doesn't go too long. That's wishful thinking, by the way. (laughs) Emily Dickinson tells us it's the thing with feathers that perches in the soul. Whatever that means. The dictionary tells us that hope is a desire with the expectation of fulfillment. So hope begins with desire for something. Good, right? But then adds the element of expectation. Without expectation, it's a wish. It's a fantasy. And wishes and fantasies tend to not happen. When we hope for something, there is an expectation. It's a possibility. We're, we're almost counting on it happening. But hope is more than just a, a word. Hope is to the spirit what oxygen is to the body. Without hope, we die. We see parallels in, in, in our world. When a, when a team loses hope that they have a chance to win, the game's over. Just as well, stop playing. When investors lose hope, the stock market tumbles. When a patient loses hope, death is crouching at the door. Viktor Frankl survived years in the Nazi concentration camps. He wrote a lot about this, his experiences. And he noticed something interesting. He noticed that prisoners died often just after Christmas. They were hoping they'd be set free by Christmas. And when they weren't, they gave up. And he learned that as long as prisoners had something to live for, a reason to press on, they could endure just about anything. But once they lost hope, they quickly died. Dostoevsky said that to live without hope is to cease to live. Bobby Knight has a different take on it, kind of a stark turn here, Dostoevsky, Bobby Knight. But Bobby Knight is, was, is, is, of course, the legendary basketball coach. Indiana Hoosiers won three NCAA championships. Um, known for a couple of things. He was known for being very, very, um, uh, very clean. He never was accused of any corruption. Um, he boasted one of the highest rates of graduates amongst his players of any institution. But he was also known for his anger, his temper. He would throw chairs and chew out officials and fans and and players and and the media, anybody in his vicinity. He could be snarky and sarcastic and biting. He wrote a book entitled The Power of Negative Thinking. And according to Knight, hope is the worst word in the English language. He says it's foolish and lazy to tell yourself that things are going to be all right. 
They'll only be all right, he says, if somebody steps up and does something about it. Now, I disagree that hope is a lazy and foolish word. But I think he is on to something there. Hope needs a reason, something or someone that can change the trajectory of a person's life or situation. Without a reason, hope is just wishful thinking. All of which is to say that on that first Easter Sunday, Mary has no reason to hope. She shows up to the tomb expecting nothing but a corpse, badly in need of spices. She'd watched him die. She saw him laid to rest. As far as she was concerned, it was over. We think of the empty tomb as Christians, and we think of hope, new life, resurrection. She looked at the empty tomb and saw a lack of hope. And so she did what we all do at a fresh grave. She cried. No reason to hope until. Let's take a look at verse 14. She turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. So she doesn't recognize Jesus at first. Um, could it be that if she was in crying, her eyes were blurry, or this morning in the dim light? But no, it's, it's, it's more likely, the Bible tells us. I mean, we see in other places that Jesus' appearance was somewhat changed after the resurrection. And he says, why are you crying? Now, he could have showed up and said, ta-da, it's me, surprise, fooled you. He could have said, stop crying, it's all good, it's, it's all good. He could have scolded her for her lack of faith, or don't you know it's me? her lack of recognition. But he says, you ask her a question. Why are you crying? Now, we shouldn't be surprised that Jesus' first words after his resurrection were in the form of a question. When you look in the Gospels, over and over when Jesus interacts with people, he often, interge- he often leads with a question. Sometimes the question is to correct or direct. Sometimes it's to, to comfort, uh, to uh, uh, affirm It's always to engage, always to engage. And that's what Jesus does for Mary. He asks her the question, and then he very gently and very personally reveals himself to her. Take a look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned around, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm returning to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. Mary. Now, there must have been something about the sound of his voice, uh, something about the mention of her name. And her eyes and her heart are open and she understands this is Jesus. He's alive. He's risen. He's, he's with me. And suddenly she has a reason to hope. She has a reason to hope. She saw the empty tomb before. She heard the angel's announcement, but that wasn't enough. She needed something more personal, an encounter, a real encounter with Jesus Christ, the risen Christ through his Holy Spirit. You see, hope needs a reason, and Mary found it in the risen Lord. And we can too. 
We need the same thing. We need evidence. Yes, there's an empty tomb. There's written records, uh, both biblical and non-biblical. The transformation of the disciples. I mean, why would they give their lives as martyrs for a lie? Um, the changed lives of people throughout history, the changed lives of people, you know, your own changed life, hopefully. We need something personal and experiential, and that's what Jesus offers Mary here. And she sees him as more real and more powerful and more glorious than she had ever seen him to be before. And she throws her arms around him, must have, or, or taken hold of his feet because Jesus says, in the original language, stop clinging to me. He's trying to tell her that, that I have to now leave and go to the Father and I'll, I'll come back, but I'm going to be with you in a different way. Where before Jesus was bound by time and space, by physical human constraints, now through his spirit, he can be with her always. He can be with all his disciples, all his people, always, everywhere, constantly. And he tells her, go and tell. Tell my brothers, tell my sisters, tell the world, death is defeated. I am risen. You can have hope. Because you see, hope is not a what or a when or a why. Hope is a who. And in that sense, Bobby Knight is right. Things do not get better just because we want them to. They get better because somebody does something. Hope is always embodied in a person. If you're a shareholder in a a company, you hope the new CEO can turn it around for profits. If you're a citizen in a city or a state or country, you hope the new leader can get the country or the state or the city back on track. If you're the fan of a sports team that's struggling, you hope the new coach or the new player can lift them out of the doldrums, out of last place. Hope is a who. And somebody wise enough and strong enough and good enough to get us to a better place. And Jesus Christ is that someone. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the reason that we can have hope, a living hope, the Bible calls it. Because his resurrection proves that he is stronger than any setback, any failure, any loss, any disappointment, even and including death. So we can have hope. But that's not to say that we always get what we want or that every bad thing magically just disappears. Life does not work that way. We know that all too well. But it is to say that God can and will do something good with our future. Because notice, Mary didn't get exactly what she wanted. Jesus was not going to be with her in the same way from now on. She wasn't going to get to hang out with him all the time, go for a walk, follow him, listen to him talk, touch him physically. But he would be now with her through the Holy Spirit always. She didn't get that yet completely. But what she did know was that the future could be good because Jesus was risen from the dead. And that's what hope is. Hope is the confidence that God can and will do something good in this life and in the life to come. And whatever circumstance you might find yourself in this morning, whatever pain or loss or disappointment or doubt or struggle that you're going through, God can do something good with it, in it, through it, or despite it. Because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. That's not meant to minimize any pain or evil, or loss, or struggle in your life, it simply means the story is not over yet. And God can and will meet you, just as he did Mary. So hope isn't wishful thinking, it's confident living. It's facing the future, knowing that God can and will do something good in this life 
and in the next. And in this life, we can find joy and peace and forgiveness and healing and restoration and purpose and the reality of God's presence each and every day because he's risen. In the life to come, we can look forward to a reunion with those who've gone ahead of us in the faith. We can look to the restoration of all creation. We can look to, forward to eternal life with God and one another in a world beyond our imagining. So let's go back to Les Miserables. We left poor Fantine. She's dying in the street. And Victor Hugo, the author, uh, he wrote to, ex- to expose what he called three great evils of his time. Poverty, the exploitation of women and children, and spiritual darkness. He pulls no punches and Fantine ends up dying. But as we know the story, somebody's there. Jean Valjean comes along, takes Cosette into his protection. He raises her. He delivers into the arms of a, of a, a wonderful young man. And as he dies at the end of the long and good life, Fantine's spirit comes from heaven to usher him into heaven. And the musical ends with this great reunion of all the characters singing about a new and better day. It's a song of hope. Now, Victor Hugo had a hard time with the church of his day. He was disappointed with some of the things that he saw, uh, things that were done or things that weren't done. But he believed in God, and that gave him reason to believe that good would triumph over evil, and that justice would be done, and that there was life and there was love. There was hope beyond the grave. And that hope was based and grounded in the existence of a good and gracious God. And it was founded in the resurrection and the reality of Jesus' presence with us each and every day. So remember, hope is facing the future, knowing that God can and will do something good in this life and in the life to come. And remember this, hope is found in the person of Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your love for us. We're grateful for your word. Uh, Lord, we we thank you and praise you that we serve um, your son, Jesus Christ, who is risen from the dead. Lord, we confess that there are times we put our hope in other things. Um, But Lord, we want to be people who put our hope in you, a, a sure and a certain and a living hope. We can face anything in life, Lord, because Jesus is with us. He will not leave us. He will not forsake us. And Lord, so we thank you for the hope that is embodied in Jesus Christ. And we trust in him. And we turn our lives over to him. In Jesus' name, amen.